It's bonus time, bingers. And hey, if you haven't done so already, you should definitely take a moment and join the True Crime Bingers Facebook discussion group. The group was started by listener Pamela Westby and is growing by the day. Check it out for some great discussions about our episodes. And speaking of episodes, for this bonus, I'm speaking with the hosts and creators of the amazing Missing Maura Murray podcast, Tim and Lance. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. Tim, Lance, what's up, guys? Bob Ruff, how's it going? <laughs> Good. You guys, you guys surviving, surviving the pandemic? Oh, we, we are hanging in there. Um, and uh, thank you for including us on your, uh, your, your pandemic special that you've been uh, running. This is a, re- <laughs> a really, really creative thing to do. And um, you know, we were talking before that it's sort of a, a silver lining in the whole pandemic thing that you're able to talk to all the other creators and, and create a conversation and a dialogue. So uh, way to go on that. And thank you for including us. Oh, you're welcome. I, I was looking forward to talking to you guys, and yeah, I think that's, I, that's what I should have named this season, the pandemic special. That's, that's got a nice <laughs> ring to it. I already trademarked it. <laughs> so, you know, anybody, they know Tim and Lance are on the line that obviously we're here to talk about the Moore Murray case, but, but before we do that, uh, as, as we've done throughout the season, I want to get to know you guys a little bit. So, Tim, I'll start with you. What was your life before you became a true crime podcaster? And you were another one that was, you know, around the time that that I got into this business when it wasn't necessarily cool to be a true crime podcaster. So what were you doing before you got into this? And then how did you end up creating uh, your amazing podcast that that got international success and even a TV show? Yeah, thanks. uh, Thanks for the question. And I appreciate you uh, starting with me. I feel like... um I feel like we have to do that. I also appreciate you starting with him because I can <laughs> think about my answers now. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we started the the Missing Maura Murray podcast in July of 2015 to really f- to further a documentary that we were working on um, that we be- began in 2013, which was really more about the people who are obsessed with the case of Maura Murray. And not so much the details of the case. And, and really, that's a lot smaller of a, an idea than investigating it. And so it was, it was something that we were working on really as a passion project um, over the course of several years. And so that was just one of many projects I was working on. I had uh, lived in Los Angeles for about a decade leading up to the, uh, the launch of Missing Maura Murray. Uh, Lance and I had known each other have known each other for about twenty years now, and have always kind of worked on projects. We worked on a lot of projects before I uh, moved from Massachusetts to Los Angeles, and some during then. And this documentary that eventually became Finding Maura Murray, we started in 2013, and I was living in in California. Uh, life changes uh, sort of happened. Some family things happened, and uh, I found myself back on the East Coast. And I, I had done a couple of podcasts 
sports related and comedy related. And so I kind of knew the format a little bit. And it was Lance's idea to do a podcast on one case on Moore Murray. And I'm like, yeah, right. We can't do we can't do that. It's got to be it's got to be a, a show about every case. And then we'll talk about Mora a little bit. You can't possibly talk about the Moore Murray case for five <laughs> years. That would never work. <laughs> never. 18 episodes. 18 episodes <laughs> top. Yeah, we were like three <laughs> episodes, maybe. So and that was like right, with that conversation happened right around the time Serial um, was airing. And so I think. Uh, not long after that, I was planning my move back and it was like, oh, you know what? Let's try that because we're this documentary that we worked on, like we, we've got some footage, but we're having some trouble meeting more of the community members that we wanted to meet. And really, that's because they don't know who we are. We're just kind of random filmmakers who just appeared trying to do this thing. And so the podcast uh, really helped put us in front of these people and they could hear us and begin to trust us. Yeah, is it you know around that time, and it's even more so now. It was interesting that just random guys like you know myself. I was a firefighter at the time. Oh, really? Could just you yeah. know go on you know when I started podcasting, and I and I go on Amazon and for a couple hundred bucks buy some equipment and start you know sitting in your basement talking. For me, that's what it was, and like all of a sudden it just gets spread out, and in the it was the days of the independent content creator were born. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, this guy's a legitimate journalist. Like, no, I'm not. I'm just a guy in my basement with a microphone. <laughs> but, but it also it built some of that notoriety to where, and I've seen the same thing where, you know, cases that I've worked since then, you know, I, I, I'm able to get my foot in a lot of doors because there's some notoriety just because I was able to, to start this podcast with nothing. Right. Yeah, for sure. Right. And, and luckily, I had a little bit of a background in in media production um i actually went to school for acting and so that's why i was in los angeles um but that's uh, such a far cry from what we do now i guess learning to speak into a microphone and stuff that was always uh something i, I didn't need to learn again you know and and editing and things like that all that stuff was already there so we we were lucky in in that aspect that we had some background in this before we started it that's awesome and, and it's interesting i didn't realize that Originally, the documentary that you guys were working on was intended to be about the phenomenon of people uh, researching the case online. Because I think in the Oxygen special, I think it said that you know this was the first like internet sleuth case that you know when when it, Facebook was becoming mainstream about the time that that the disappearance of Moore Murray happened. It, 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 so was that was kind of the basis of your documentary was how all people on Facebook started talking about this random case. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't so much uh, Facebook. It was really, um, it started with James Renner looking at his blog. He was he was really uh, in tune with the case and the details and was at the forefront of getting um, court documents and police transcripts. And the more you looked into his uh, original blog, sort of the, the deeper you, you climbed or fell down the rabbit hole. And all the people that would comment on his blog posts really uh, started to become the the fascinating part or the fascinating sub-story to Moore's disappearance. It was the disappearance and then it was all these people and all their comments and what they knew or didn't know or thought they knew and how they started interacting with each other. And it would, it would go to all levels of, of either like the utmost respect to the most toxic situation. That was really fascinating. What's, what's fascinating about it now is looking back, it seems like not that long ago, but you know, now it's the norm that you know there's there's a there's a facebook group or a reddit thread or a blog about 
just about every interesting true crime case out there. But back then, that was a new thing. People weren't investigating cases on the internet back then. It was it was it was relatively new. Yeah, yeah for sure. And if they were, they weren't saying anything about it for the most part. I right. Mean, James James Renner pretty much was the first person I had ever seen that put information out there on a regular basis about one particular case. And I'm sure there were others that were. I mean, we know that there were others that were working behind the scenes with law enforcement on other cases. Uh, they just weren't really fully utilizing that that internet presence at the time. Right. So, Lance, same question for you. Where did you? It sounds like you guys were both filmmakers. So how and and how did you make that transition? Was it something you guys did together? It sounds like it was maybe kind of your idea. How did you guys go from filmmaking to podcasting? And was there anything else in your personal life did you have a career before filmmaking or is media production always kind of been your career path oh yeah i had a uh, career in the events industry i worked for a few different uh events companies in boston we did uh you know the fundraisers the boston marathon weddings mitzvahs and uh i was uh working at a particular uh company just outside of boston at the time that we started the missing Maura murray podcast and i remember uh, going to a site inspection and, and Tim was texting me or, or he called me. I can't remember. I think it was a text. And he said, uh, he, he gave me the download numbers for, I think it was like the first like episode, the, fir- the second episode, the third episode. And I was like, this, these are wrong. Like no one's, there's not that many people who want to hear this. And I really thought that they were wrong. And I had, a, I had another buddy who was doing a podcast as well. And I told him uh, at a cookout once that our podcast, uh, the last episode, got 30,000 downloads. And he was like, that's a mistake. He's like, there's no way that got 30,000 <laughs> right. downloads. Because he was doing one and he wasn't putting any effort into it because it was at a time when you just sort of did it as a hobby. So mm-hmm. we did the TV show. I was still working my uh, full-time job. And it was, uh, I think, October, September, October of... 2017 that I decided to quit the full-time job just because we had so many other irons in the fire. We had Missing Maura Murray. We had Crawl Space. We had just started Empty Frames about the Isabella Stewart Garden Museum heist. And it was starting to take over. And, and it wasn't like we were generating a ton of revenue. I mean, you, you know, like the hustle it takes to get to a point where you can live off something like this. Like most mm-hmm. podcasters barely live off of this, uh, us, us included. And but it was it was at a time where it would that was the most important decision to make that that was the most important direction to go in because I'd done events my whole life we had worked on side projects uh, independent films short films we did uh, murder mystery dinner theater which is a which is a big uh, omission from our past right now we we worked together on murder <laughs> mystery dinner theater shows for several years that's fair yeah which comedy were amazing. Shows. Comedy shows. Sorry, I always forget the word comedy. I think I think I always took them so seriously that I don't remember that they were actually comedies. <laughs> but uh, so so it was like okay, I got this other. I got I got two lives going here. You know, I have the professional life that's pretty dependable, or I could go with this extremely volatile, undependable or non-dependable uh, path. And I chose that, and it was a good decision because ultimately, there's been more. Uh, change and more good. You know, you wake up in the morning and you're like, okay, well, we're putting out awareness for for something, and and that not a lot of people have the opportunity to do that. So very grateful for that. It is it is really fulfilling, and I you know as you guys know I followed a similar path where you know I had a per, the the government job with the benefits and all that, and and 
decided after doing this for about a year that you know I was going to leave and do the do this full time, and you know went through a lot of the, the same struggles. And but it, it feels good to get up and, and and feel like you're doing something every day that that is that matters to people. Yeah, for sure. And but I will say, you were a firefighter. I have a soft spot for firefighters, and uh, that's a commendable job. So either path you would have taken was was a good one. Yeah, you know, you know, it's it's interesting that for me that when I made the shift, is you know, I had I had been promoted to fire chief a couple of years before I started the podcast, and I think if had I not got that promotion, I probably never would have done this because it you know I went from riding on a rig every day and you know interacting with people and actually making a difference in people's lives every day to sitting behind a desk and not having that interaction, and I think that was part of what drove me. To do this because it, you know, as, as a fire chief, you become more of a politician than you are a, a, a firefighter, and so I think that was a lot of what what drove me to make that decision. Wow, well, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I missed. I I, I was I, I got promoted young, and I really missed kicking down doors in my thirties. <laughs> oh, for yeah, I I can imagine. Right, you get the, I guess the action, the adrenaline of the everyday experience being a firefighter, and and you're right there. You know, you're you're responding, and that's going to be super addicting. Yeah, you know, I uh, I also had a big problem with it. Is a in the fire world, the uh, the chief wears a white uniform, white shirt uniform, and I found out very quickly that I was just too clumsy to be a chief because every <laughs> single uniform I have has coffee stains down. I spilled coffee on my shoulder once. It none of it made sense. I couldn't <laughs> I stains all down the front of all my uniform shirts. It wasn't for me. <laughs> do you do you still get the a similar adrenaline rush at all? Definitely. I mean, it's been rough during the, you know, during this pandemic time because I'm not out in the field. But yeah, typically when I'm out at least once a month or once every two months, I'm out in the field working, doing interviews. And, you know, I'm standing toe to toe interviewing people that, you know, I believe are are murderers or dangerous people. And there's there's definitely some of that there. But sitting in the office, not so much. I'm just just sitting here getting fat, waiting until I can finally get out and do my, my normal job again. Yeah. Do you ever, as like an intimidation factor, show up when you're speaking with these people in a white shirt and like a mustard stain or a co- coffee stain just to like throw them off? <laughs> and like a fire hat? Yeah. And a fire yeah, hat. Yeah, whip out one of my old uniforms. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, two more questions. One, uh, before we get into the case, one, how did the two of you meet? I mean, it sounds like you guys have been working together for a long time before Moore Murray. How did you you meet originally? Oh, uh, it was uh, it was Sleigh Bell's E-Harmony. ring. Yeah, it was uh, it, it was the murder mystery comedy dinner theater play that Lance wrote called Sleigh Bell's Ring. That's S L A Y, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> clever. I like it. Yeah, and he cast me, and uh, and really through like a mutual friend, and and that was it. and it was just so fun. It was a a, mur- a small intimate. Murder mystery comedy dinner theater troupe led by Lance, who was writing and directing and producing all these plays in New England, and uh, you, I think we just got along right away. And we uh, like those those nights after those shows, like we partied like rock stars. And that's and then the the friendship was born. Yeah, yeah it it really it really was the motley crew of the uh, murder mystery comedy dinner theater. Uh, <laughs> circuit that, that um, whole scene <laughs> yeah yeah we, we were big on the scene and i'll i'll tell you there's there's something to be said about somebody who can join a theater group and their first production involves santa claus's side business being a cocaine running um racket and that's what he that's what he does on the days where he's not delivering toys 
right. and and his elves are sort of the minions, and there's a, a drug war going on, all in the name of comedy. So <laughs> something to be said for someone who sticks around after that. It's it sounds like a brilliant piece of writing. <laughs> I mean, it's really uh, uh, not a lot of writers of Vonnegut would never even think of this. <laughs> Wouldn't have, never have attempted it. So so Tim. You, you moved to L.A. as an aspiring actor after getting your start in the, the Santa Claus cocaine ring play. Did you ever land any roles where anyone may have, may have seen you? Uh, yeah, I'm n- not anything crazy or anything, but I, I did some roles in short films and independent movies and a bunch of webisodes and things like that that people have seen but probably would not have heard of anything if I mentioned that but I also did some extra work like you can see me in the prestige you know I, th- I think people like hearing that more about the things that they have not seen so aside from the murder mystery Santa Claus cocaine ring is there a role that you landed that you acted in that you wish you hadn't and you hope no one ever sees <laughs> uh no, I played I played a killer in a movie that I wrote. It was like a short film that I wrote, and I kind of hope no one sees that now because I feel like now that I do the true crime thing, I feel like it might be in bad taste for that. So I'm kind of glad right. that that's buried. But no, the rest of it's fine. Like uh, I I did, made this movie a, a crazy horror comedy that's very much a comedy um, called Pan Man, and uh, you know I hope everyone sees that. But it's very very low budget and crazy. Awesome. All right, so now let's let's move into this case. And so the way we're going to do that, the the basics of the case are Maura Murray. She's a student at the University of Massachusetts. And uh, in February of 2004, she sends an email off to her professors and says she's taking a week off because there's a death on her family. And there was no death on her family. That should be noted. And the evening of February 9th, she crashes her car on Route 12 uh, in Haverville, New Hampshire. A woman drives by, sees the wreck, calls and reports it. Another guy drives by and offers her help, and she tells him that, that she has roadside assistance coming on the way, and then no one ever sees her again. So with that kind of basis, can you guys break down the, the beats of the case? It's complicated because you don't know a lot about what, what happened, but there's a lot of detail in there that, that I've missed. And then what's going on with your investigation through the podcast, along with the help of James Renner, over the course of these last five years? Wow. How long do yeah. you have? Do we have like all afternoon here? We got like an hour. <laughs> yeah. I only had that one simple question. <laughs> okay. Not a problem. Oh, oh okay. Uh, I want to make a quick uh, quick correction. Um, there was a woman that drove by. Uh, she was later known as Witness A, and uh, she did not call for assistance. It was the neighbor that, or the resident that lived pretty much across the street from the accident. She was the first person to call, Faith, Faith Westman. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. All right, so yeah, let's let's start with kind of the 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 beats of the case. I mean, that's just kind of a, a quick overview. But in the the last days, where people were seeing Mora, were there anybody that were that you sus- suspected or that people suspect may have had a reason to abduct her, or do we think it was an accident? Just the the basic beats to begin with. Yeah, that that's a tough. Everything's a tough question to answer because you really have to. It's like a choose your own adventure in a lot of ways. Where if you if you think one thing happened a few days before more went missing, then that means you have to think certain things down the line. So that's kind of one of the reasons I think this case gets so divisive online. But it, but I really think her her disappearance started long before she disappeared. She 
was having some issues in her personal life and uh, with her boyfriend, and she had changed schools. She was going to West Point, which is, you know, a military organization or military school. I mean, that's, that's, she, she was really smart, you know, got incredible SAT scores. Uh, She got into West Point, just like her sister. Like, that's, that's really impressive. And, but she didn't, she didn't stay too long. Uh, She ended up meeting Bill Rausch there, uh, her boyfriend, when she disappeared. And then she ended up transferring to UMass Amherst, the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, Massachusetts. And uh, she had some, some issues at UMass, kind of like she did at West Point. She, she stole something, I think, from a, from a gift shop and at, at West Point. And that kind of put her on the radar as in, do you really want to stay here or do you not? Because I uh, you know, believe stealing is one of the major things uh, at West Point. Obviously, um, cadets you know, are not really allowed to do that. That's not some uh, behavior they can really conduct. So then when she got to UMass in October of 2003, she was using a stolen credit card. And, uh, and she used it, I believe, I want to say four, at least four times that she used this credit card. But it was like for pizza and subs and things like that. And it was often late at night. And so there was some speculation that she might have had an eating disorder because it seemed like she was ordering like just pizza. And maybe it was just party stuff. Who knows? You know, I wasn't there. Who knows? Uh, but she was actually caught using that stolen credit card in uh, November of 2003. And then she had a, uh, a court hearing in December. And so, and she was in nursing school, you know, so, th- so I think it was, it was possible that she could get kicked out of nursing school. I don't know that this, this incident would have done that. I think if she kept her uh, nose clean at that point, it would have been fine and wouldn't have had to worry about it at all with, her schooling and everything. But um, obviously, yeah, things started getting worse after that. And she kind of, uh, I, don't, I, I wish I knew more. Obviously, we, we have done this podcast for five years and we don't know what her mental state was the days before she went missing. But she did crash her, uh, her dad's car and totaled it, I believe, because I want to say around $10,000 worth of damage on a, uh, a Toyota Corolla at uh umass amherst and um so so i don't know you know she was she was having some kind of i don't i hesitate to use the word breakdown or something but she was having some mental troubles at that time so she had regarding her her mental state we do have an email that she sent to her boyfriend was on the the night before she went missing you know she said i you know love you more or whatever but then did she, she also said that i just don't feel like talking to anybody right now yeah, that's that's correct, and and you know, in regards to her mental state and and uh, whether or not she was spiraling, uh, this is where the whole fog of the you know what what was going on in her head at that time. That's when it it pretty much starts because you look at the violation that happened at West Point where she was um, caught for shoplifting. Essentially, that that was a, a major violation. That was something that would go against you, um, and and the option was given to her to to leave. Um, but then she starts a, a program at UMass Amherst, like Tim said, the nursing program. That's one of the hardest in, in the country. Like that, from what we've heard, uh, she went into a situation that would challenge her again. She was also a, a runner. She was an avid runner. She was an, an incredible competitor. And if you were to be talking about anybody who wasn't missing, you chalk up all of the all of those other um, marks against her. You just chalk that up to just being young, you know, like. Someone crashes right. a car. Someone 
uh, steals something from a gift shop. Uh, someone takes a, a credit card number and writes it down, and instead of using their cash, it's just easier to put nine bucks or twelve bucks on this uh, random credit card number that that's been circulating around college. I, I'm sure a lot of people did that. The fact that she's missing without a trace, and she sends that email that says she has to get away because of a family death, and then we find out that's not true. And then we find out about the phone call that she had at the security desk that she worked where she was crying and she kind of sobbed out, my sister. All of these start to line up and then things can... This is where it's super, it gets super uh, in the weeds. You can look at all of the other remarks against her and you can say, was this a reason or not? Uh, and you can really fight for whether it is or not. You know, the, the credit card number that she was using for food, <laughs> Tim mentioned, you know, then was that a sign that she was bulimic? Like, what? <laughs> you know, like this is actually out there. Mm-hmm. You know, she was bulimic, which leads to another mental condition, which need- leads to something else, which leads to depression. You know, I'm not saying that all this happened. I'm saying that's what you have to sift through. And then you have to determine whether or not it even matters in the first place. And I remember when we first started doing this, James Renner had said that there are two mysteries. One, why she left the mystery of UMass and the mystery of where she is. And I, and at first I never subscribed to that because I was like, it doesn't matter what she was doing at UMass. What matters is the, the location where her car was found uh, was so far away. I had a distinct division in my head. like It didn't matter uh, what happened at UMass. What brought her to that location was irrelevant. She's missing at that location. So whoever took her, wherever she went, was there, you know? And since then, I've wavered. And that, that's another thing. You have to allow yourself to waver. Yeah, there's, there's so many competing theories. And when you look at kind of victimology and look at her, where she was at mentally, emotionally leading up to that, it certainly looks like she's, she's kind of running away. You know, there's, there's, there's a problem she's kind of running away from, but then we look at, it's not like this car crash was in, you know, the middle of Manhattan where she could, you know, sneak away into a building and get on a subway and a train and, and disappear. It was kind of out in the middle of nowhere, right? Yeah. Uh, it's, it, she drove from, uh, you know, a small town in Western Massachusetts from the campus, which is a huge campus actually for, for universities and college as far as, as far as they go. But so she left like a mini city with of surrounding surrounded by her peers and drove about three hours north to the White Mountains of New Hampshire, an area that she knew well. She had visited often with her family in summer and winter. Was she? We know she loved to run. She loved to hike as well. I'm not really sure about winter sports, but I wouldn't be surprised. And uh, so she went missing on Route 112 in North Haverhill, which is off the exit a few miles. And it's really kind of like a mountain pass road. You can, you can take Route 112, and that would connect you to two of the main interstates that go north and south in the northeast. And so she was in an area that was about to... She was driving to an area that was about to get really remote. Like she was about to drive through the, the forest part of the White Mountains. Um, but she hadn't gotten there yet. So she was technically in front of like three residences you know, who could, who could really see her car. Um, and, and so that's not unlike any suburb, really, in, in that way. So it's interesting because I know a lot of people think, well, oh, well, she, she dropped the car there or, oh, you know, it's just she's in the mountains, obviously. It's, you know, but it's not really like right by a trailhead. She would have had to have run a little bit out of the way to, you know, down the street and maybe cross the river to really get lost um, or, or further, you know. 
And what was the weather? What was the weather like? Uh, the weather uh, has always been called like unseasonably warm, but it was it was around. Correct me if I'm wrong. It, it was around uh, like low thirties, yeah. low thirties, high twenties. Like probably at that time, I would say it was seven thirty, just a little bit warmer than a typical New England, like uh, um, White Mountains uh, February. Early February night, yeah, it was probably oh, yeah. like definitely like 30, 20, 31, 32, something like that at the warmest. Yeah, which is like twenty degrees warmer than it usually is. At least uh, twenty degrees warmer than what it usually is on a February night up there. But it, it, was there snow on the ground? There was a little. There bit, was like a dusting. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> sorry. Snow banks on the side of the road, um, but the roads were dry. So we've heard from the neighbor. And also the uh, police report says that the roads were clear and dry, but there was, there was snow from previous storms. So is there any explanation as to like why the crash occurred? Did they ever do an accident reconstruction to figure out why she crashed to begin with? <laughs> yeah, this is, um, a, this is a big one <laughs> um, because you can, you can go down a lot of different rabbit holes here. Um, this is just one of those many spots. Um, but on the police report, it says that she hit a tree and that's hotly debated. Um, whether or not she did because if you look at the damage on the saturn it kind of looks like uh she couldn't have hit something that came up from the ground like a pole or a tree because there's not much damage like below it almost seems like it was uh like a trailer hitch and and that's what some of the reconstructions have kind of concluded that uh that the damage doesn't necessarily match the scene um but also Keep in mind, this was uh, th- there was a little ditch there, which I think a lot of people don't ever really mention. There's a little, like a couple foot dip uh, that happens right there on the side of the road, and then there's the snowbank. So whether or not she hit the tree, I don't know, um, but I think she, I think the damage probably occurred from a really hard icy snowbank on the side of that road, uh, accompanied with the ditch. Okay, but that's just my opinion. Sure. And, and I know a lot of this and a lot of this, I'm going to refer people back to go listen to your podcast to get all the details. There's just too much to dig into. Going back to her kind of mental state, it kind of looks like she's running away. She takes off, but it, it seems too remote, at least in my view, it seems too remote for her to have just gotten out of the car and just ran into the mountains in those temperatures. You know, hypothermia would have set in pretty darn quick. You know, if, you, if she spent the night in the mountains. And then if she's running away, is, is, are there theories that maybe someone was, you know, meeting her out there where she got out and got in another vehicle? Oh, sure. There's, there's the tandem driver theory that uh, I think James Renner put out there right early on because it seems to make the most sense. Uh, if you look at the area, the perception is that she went missing in the White Mountains. It was a White Mountain region. But like Tim said, she would have had to have hustled uh, quite a ways to get to a, a trailhead in the dark with no car uh, in order to go into a trail and then get lost. That, that seems a little bit unreasonable because they've done numerous searches there and nothing has come up. Not an article of clothing, not a cell phone, not a key, not a shoe. Uh, nothing has been found there. Uh, there's the wild Amanusik River that is uh, very accessible by foot if you were to climb like cross the street, uh, go down a little bit, climb down an embankment. But it was frozen at the time. There was a lot of ice caps uh, in, in the water. There's always a lot of ice caps in the water at that time, especially in February. So if she had slipped and hit her head, even if that slow trickle of a river was, was flowing, she would have gotten caught up in something before it opened up into the uh, Connecticut River, which is uh, several miles away. 
So so that that sort of uh, checks that kind of off the list. No, nothing's actually checked off the list because her body's never been found. Nothing's ever been found, uh, and she's never had any communication with anybody uh, yeah. since that night. But her scent, according to the uh, to the dogs, the the uh, scent dogs that they brought to the scene, her scent disappeared at the head of Bradley Hill Road, which is about maybe two hundred. 50 yards maybe 200 yards from the accident site uh in the in the eastern direction that's right in yeah the eastern direction uh, yeah mm-hmm. in the eastern direction so she was actually uh traveling east her car was spun around was facing west so it was facing the opposite direction so her scent went missing in the direction that she was traveling in in her car and that was right in between two homes that was butch atwood the bus driver who saw her who she told she called AAA. And on the other side at Bradley Hill was Rick Forcier, who's been talked about in this case uh, ad nauseum about just, he's a very peculiar character. No one's saying that he's a uh, person of interest at this time. He's just an interesting character. So her scent went missing right there by the dogs. So if you look at all of these things, the articles that were not found in her car, the articles that were found in her car, nothing's found of her within uh, miles of the scene, extensive searches, helicopter searches. That suggests that she was picked up, whether it was indicative of somebody following her and they saw the accident and they picked her up and they were planning on going back to get the car later on, or somebody picked her up against her will. Yeah, I, I just want to add uh, one thing. I think uh, you, you mentioned that, that James Renner uh, had the theory of the tandem driver. That was I, I, before he entered the scene, I think, in 2011 and started covering the case, uh, the, the police had discussed that. Um, that they thought she had potentially been picked up by someone she knew. And really, if you look at the surroundings and you understand that no one reported uh, hearing any screams and there's no struggle and there's no blood on the road and there's, you know, there's no sign of a hit and run. I know a lot of people uh, like to think that an accidental hit and run and then they just put her in her trunk and or someone put her in the trunk and then they kept going. Uh, but there's nothing like that. So really, w- when you look at the scene, and obviously we've been there uh, several times, but it just, it does seem like she got into the car of someone she knew. That, that was always my, my first thought. Um, or at least she hitchhiked uh, and, or, you know, got into a stranger's car. But if that was the case, then she did it without much conversation at all. You know, you're talking like uh, a, a couple of sentences or two. It's so baffling and, and, and difficult to formulate a, a theory. You know, back, back in 2015, you know, I was listening to your guys' podcast every week and just, it, it's so hard to even formulate a theory. It seems to me it, extremely unlikely that she just, you know, wandered into the wilderness. I think she would have been found or some some evidence of that would have been found by now. The, you know, getting into a car with someone she knew makes sense, except for the fact that if, if that was a plan, then why the crash? Uh, you know, it, it doesn't seem like that was right. the intended rendezvous point. It doesn't make sense for that to be a plan unless someone was following. Then you have witnesses that saw her, or at least a witness that saw her in the car alone after the crash. So, and she tells the guy when he offers her help, she doesn't want it. So it seems unlikely that she would have just jumped in the next stranger's vehicle willingly. It's just, it's, 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 it's mind boggling to me. This that's why this case has fascinated me so much. Cause I, I can't even come up with a theory that makes sense. Yeah. And when you think about her getting into a car with somebody else, you break down, See, this is something that I never used to do in the events industry, strangely enough. <laughs> you, you, you break down the motivations and you break down the ripple effect of that. If she gets in a car with somebody else, it's a minimum of one person now that knows where she is going 
prior to the uh, like after the crash. You know, they are now in charge of where she is going. Does she know that person? Doesn't she know that person? Why hasn't that person come forward at all ever that we know of, even to law enforcement, and said, uh, "I picked up somebody that night. I don't know who it was." Or if it's a friend of hers, why wouldn't they come forward and say? I picked her up um, and because then what happened to her? Because she's still gone, right? So if it's a friend, did something happen between crash site and point B? Or did something happen at point B? And now they're covering it up. And that's at least one person who knows who hasn't said anything. So that, that, that almost uh, is an argument against her getting picked up because I would think that if someone picked her up and they didn't have anything to do with her disappearance, they would say, I picked up this young woman and brought her to a gas station. She went on the payphone to make a call because her cell phone wasn't working, and I made sure that uh, she got a ride, or I made sure that she was warm inside and she was waiting for a ride. No one's ever said that that we know of. So, who who picked her up? Right. It almost it almost leads you to the inevitable conclusion that there was foul play involved. Yeah. 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 That's definitely where we uh, lean for sure. So there's. As we can dig through the weed, there's so many different things. Like I, I remember a discussion, unless I'm remembering incorrectly, but way back about wasn't there? There's something about a rag in her tailpipe or a rag in her in her gas tank. Yeah, yeah there was a rag in the tailpipe, and that was a super uh, <laughs> sort of like the uh, the red herring, right? The the this is what's going to distract you. This is what is going to take you to Act Three, but it, it it's. I mean, it, it is it is explainable, and and Tim and I think that we actually know why it was in there. And and if you look at all of the details uh, from reading the police report and and the accounts, even what her dad said, her dad told her to put the rag in the tailpipe because the car wasn't functioning properly and it was it was sputtering and smoking. And if she needed to drive around campus and not attract attention of the campus police. Just throw throw a rag in the tailpipe. That's pretty bad advice, but that's what he said. Throw a rag in the tailpipe, and your car won't smoke. It was sort of on its last legs. Um, and even when you say that, you wonder why she even took a car that was on its last legs uh, three hours north. At least we didn't even know where she was going. She could have been intending to go six hours north. Um, so she's taking a car that's not running. You know, it's uh, it's down a cylinder. It's not capable of doing uh, long distance journeys. So. Yeah, I'll I'll stop rambling, but Tim, if you want to tell what our theory is on that, trying to get out of the uh, the ditch. Yeah, well, I think um, so. Fred Murray told uh, Mora to put the rag there, so I think the most likely thing is uh, either Mora put it there, or you know, someone who Mora told that her dad said that. But more than likely, it was Mora. Uh, when you accompany it with the report uh, from one of the neighbors, uh, the eyewitnesses saying there was a flurry of activity near the trunk of the vehicle, Mora actually probably just went into the trunk and got that rag, um, which Fred uh, Murray, her dad, um, I believe recognized as a rag that he had given her. And she, likely Mora, um, put it in the tailpipe to, get, to, to attempt to start the car again and get it out of the ditch. Because uh, actually what we know is that she could have driven the car. The car wasn't completely undrivable at that point. She even tried to start the car, I want to say, seven times, seven clicks um, after that accident. But she was not able to. And I think what people think is that she, she, was, she didn't take the, the key out of her car. And then you kind of put it back in to reset it. But if she had, she would have been able to start it. 
I don't know if that's 100% accurate, but that's what we've heard. So yeah, and I, and I also think there's a there was a, some damage to the windshield. So I think there's a good chance she hit her head on the windshield at that point, you know? So maybe some of her decisions after that accident uh, w- weren't her best decisions. Yeah, she very well could have been disoriented. And that's, you know, in head injuries like that, they they progress over time. So, you know, when, when the first guy comes by and asks her to help, she may still have her wits about her. And then, you know, 10 minutes later, not so much. Mm-hmm. As we're, as we're getting ready to, to, to wrap this up, the, the case is just like most long-form true crime cases that are discussed on the internet, there are always controversial theories out there. So can I have each one of you, um, this time we'll start with Lance, talk a li- briefly about one of the, the theories that are out there that are controversial that we still don't know the answer to. Oh, Damn. I don't start with me, huh? Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, one of the more controversial theories that came about um, over hmm, it's about two years ago, uh, where the family had organized a dig in one of the neighboring homes. Uh, they had done some uh, research, and we had actually uh, done some research on the same home. The the area there, there were within you know a stone's throw. There were some questionable people who uh, seemed to fit the profile of someone who would take advantage of this opportunity. So there was some credible tips that were given to the family, and the family organized a a search of the home. They ended up working in uh, collaboration with the New Hampshire. Uh, state police and uh, and the FBI was even there, I believe, and they had helicopters flying over. It was a big scene. There was this big scene that was created, and it's no secret that the family, especially Fred Murray and everyone from the the top of uh, the court system in New Hampshire to the officer on the scene of Moore's uh, crash, uh, they they they've been very Fred and the family has been very critical of law enforcement. So, uh, they've he sued to get uh, information released and it has been a, a you know understandably a, a thorn in their side. So this dog and pony circus show happened where they had a helicopter. There was a press conference only to say that they found nothing. I remember watching that as that news was breaking. I think it was one of your uh, Twitter or Instagram pages or something. Like, oh, my God, all these people are here. I, I was convinced that they found her. And then the press conference comes out and it was nothing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we, we thought so, too. Yeah. And that was a, that's controversial because that was, a, in my opinion, that was a, a direct answer to the family doing their own independent search and, and skirting the uh, law enforcement's, uh, I guess, system, their, their progress in it, their, their, the way they're approaching the investigation. So it really, to me, felt like the police and the assistant attorney general they came out and publicly said okay well we did this we we brought in everybody we brought in helicopters we brought in dogs we brought in uh uh professionals who can dig in this basement and and we're doing a press conference and you know what it's your lead and we found nothing so it it felt like a it was a big punch in the gut uh to the more murray community who cares about what happened to her i can't imagine what it was like for the family to hear that but Again, the reason why that's the most controversial in my head is because it had shown me what this had turned into, which was a spectacle, and and it needed to be 
brought back down to okay, <laughs> what what happened? Because there's something there's something that happened to this woman, and now we're turning it into press conferences where we announce nothing just to prove a point, and it was frustrating. Right. All right, Tim. Do you have one? One. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of people ask about Mora's boyfriend at the time, Bill Rausch, and uh, he was a, a, I believe, he was a soldier at uh, at Fort Sill. He was in the army um, after he had graduated from West Point, so he was in Oklahoma, um, I believe, on the day that Mora Murray disappeared. But that that does not really leave him out of the uh, online conversation. Because later, uh, a few years ago, several allegations from uh, different women came out, and uh, he had a protection order put on him just uh, recently by one of them. And then uh, he's facing trial coming up in 2021 for sexual assault, I believe, uh, something that happened back in 2011. And so, like, I... I don't know, you know, that that's that's one thing. Everyone knows, you know, and it's long believed in the lore of the case that Bill was in Oklahoma and, you know, you can't get off an army base when, you know, without everyone knowing, you know, there there are rules and regulations. So uh so that's one of the hotly debated theories out there is uh could Bill have actually gotten out earlier you know because he, and he is now back uh, into the community in the community he's on the on- online community he's a part of it now um which he wasn't for oh, years really? yeah and he re- he really wasn't for years like i don't know 12 13 years or something like that and now so he's back and uh so you can even ask him questions and there are a lot of questions that the community still has for him um his phone records were released a few years ago and there are a lot of questions there that people still have, I think. Uh, but again, this is just one. You know, there, there was also a hit and run at UMass Amherst several days before Mora went missing. And if you want to subscribe to that, that actually, like, logically makes perfect sense why Mora would have to feel like she needed to get out of town uh, for a little while. You know, so sorry I snuck a second one in, but uh, I had to. couldn't resist well it's it's interesting that we didn't even bring that part up like this is how multifaceted and layered this case is there's a a moment that happened in uh there's a moment that happened at umass that may or may not be directly related to her but if it is it makes total sense but you can't force that it's like so many other layers that you have to look at and and not commit yourself to but in terms of like this is what happened but commit yourself in trying to figure out uh, how it didn't happen. Because if you can figure that out, then it probably didn't happen. But don't try to force the puzzle pieces to fit. Right. It, it, you know, guys, it is such an interesting case. And for all of you listening, I highly recommend you go check out the Missing More Murray podcast. And if you have a lot of free time, it's perfect. I think you guys have done, what, over 130 episodes just about Mora's case? That is correct. Yeah. Yeah. So there's 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 plenty of information there the the podcast is really well done it had me on the edge of my seat back in the back in the day back in 2015 and i still pop in from time to time to see where where the updates are at uh last thing guys if anybody does you know maybe we're reaching a little bit of a new audience here that hasn't heard your podcast before and doesn't know much about the case if someone has any information about the disappearance of moore murray where can they who can they get a hold of and where can they send that info 
Uh, the, the first thing I would say is submit it to the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. That is uh, the only agency that can really wrap up this case if there is someone uh, who committed a crime in this case. So I would say first there, you can submit a, a tip to us. We will send that to them. You can also find the Murray family out there uh, on their website. Fantastic. All right, guys. Well, I will let you go. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me and share a little bit about the case. And I, and I can't stress enough to you listeners, we have barely scratched the even the <laughs> surface of the surface of this case. And for all those details, go check out the Missing More Murray podcast. Yes. It, at, it, at, your, at your own peril. At it, your own peril. It's a citizen sleuth's dream, Bob. And we got to have you on to talk about it. Uh, you know, you, you know about the case a little bit like this is great. And, and your audience is, is into the crowdsourcing. We need to uh, to have you on our show soon. Awesome. Let's make it happen. Sounds good. Nice. And not to not to drag out this a little bit longer, but what you can take from Morris case, you can you know, you look into so many other cases in this uh, in this arena. What you can take from Morris case, uh, like Tim said, it's a it's a citizen sleuth dream. You can apply that if done correctly to all the other cases. You, it, it, it is a blueprint for how to approach all the other cases because it it's so layered. True Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge. Oh, 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 oh,